How do we learn complex skills? Understanding ACT-R theory. How do we learn complex skills like programming, physics, or piloting a plane? What changes in our brain to allow us to perform these skills? How much does learning one thing help us learn something else? These are hard questions. Most experiments only attempt to address narrow slices of the problem. So things like, how does the schedule of studying impact memory? Is it better to reread or to practice retrieval? Should you practice a whole skill or build it up from its parts first? Now, these kinds of questions don't address the big issues that we have about how the mind works. And this is what makes John Anderson's ACT-R theory so ambitious. It's an attempt to synthesize a huge amount of work in psychology to form a broad picture of how we learn complicated skills. Now, even if the theory turns out to not be the whole story, it helps illuminate our understanding of the problem. First, a note on scientific paradigms. So before I get into explaining ACTAR, I need to step back a bit and talk about how to think about scientific theories in general. All scientific theories are built on paradigms. A paradigm is an example that you take as central for describing a phenomenon. So Newton had falling apples and orbiting planets. Darwin had the beaks of finches. And obviously, Newton didn't restrict his theory to tumbling fruit nor Darwin to a few island-dwelling birds, yet these were the examples that they used to lay the foundations for their broader theories. Nowadays, we take for granted that mechanics and evolution are science, and thus their original paradigm cases are just largely historical footnotes. We can ignore their origins and simply focus on applying the theory. Now, theories of mind aren't like this. Nobody believes we've found some unified theory that fully explains how the mind works. Yet we know a lot more than nothing. Scientists have collected mountains of evidence that sharply constrain any valid theory of the mind. But minds are complicated and there's still a lot of possible theories that could fit. So with this in mind, what does ACT-R take to be its paradigm case for cognitive skill? ACT-R focuses on problem solving, particularly in well-defined domains like algebra or programming. Specifically, its focus is on intellectual skills. ACT-R does not account for how we move our bodies nor how we transform input from our eyes and ears to make sense of the problem. At first glance, this paradigm might not seem very representative. Certainly, most of human experience isn't like learning to program Lisp. Yet a good paradigm doesn't need to be prototypical of the phenomena it tries to model. In fact, often the opposite is true, with the best paradigms being unusual because they lack the normal messiness of typical situations. Newtonian mechanics had to overcome the fact that we're immersed in an atmosphere where friction is ubiquitous and therefore most objects eventually come to rest. Darwin needed the peculiar environment of the Galapagos, where finches would adapt to unique niches in relative isolation. Within this paradigm, ACT-R makes some impressive predictions and manages to account for a huge body of psychological data. Therefore, I think it's worth understanding seriously if we want a better picture of how we learn things. ACT-R Basics – Declarative and Procedural Memory Systems ACT-R argues that we have two different memory systems, declarative and procedural. The declarative system includes all of your memories of events, facts, ideas, and experiences. 
Everything you consciously experience is part of this system. It contains both your direct sensory experience as well as your knowledge of abstract concepts. The procedural system consists of everything you can do. It includes motor skills like tying a shoelace or typing on a keyboard, but also mental skills like adding up numbers or composing an email. ACT-R explains complex skills as an ongoing interaction between these two systems. The declarative system represents the outside world, your inner thoughts and intentions. The procedural system acts on those representations to make overt actions and internal adjustments that move you closer to your goals. Why two separate systems though? A single system would have been a lot simpler. However, there's a range of evidence arguing that these systems are actually distinct in the brain. For one, amnesiacs can learn through the procedural system, but not the declarative system. Thus, they can learn to perform new tasks, but afterward they have no memory of having been taught those tasks. Priming experiments only work with the declarative system and not the procedural. For instance, presenting the word computer will speed up how quickly people can access computer-related memories, but it doesn't make them any faster at using a computer. Procedural memory is unidirectional. This is why saying the alphabet forward is so much easier than saying it backward. To go backward, you need to produce the letters going forward, rehearse them in your head so that a declarative representation is active in working memory, and then finally manipulate them to reverse the order. In other words, it's a lot of work. Declarative memory shows fan effects. So in declarative memory, in contrast, links between nodes go both directions, so either node can access the other. However, a node with many outgoing links doesn't necessarily link to any particular one of them strongly. So for instance, a picture of a beagle makes it easy to recall the word dog, but the word dog doesn't make you recall a specific picture of a beagle with a high probability. Neuroscientific studies also suggest different locations for the two systems. The hippocampus and associational cortices play pivotal roles in declarative memory. In contrast, the procedural system seems to rely on subcortical structures such as the basal ganglia and dopamine networks. The declarative system. The basic unit of declarative memory is the chunk. This is a structure that binds approximately three pieces of information. The exact contents will vary depending on the chunk, but they're assumed to be pretty simple. 17 is a number, maybe an English description of a chunk that contains three elements. 17 is a number. Since chunks are so rudimentary, how do we understand anything complicated? The idea is that through experience, we connect these chunks into elaborate networks, and then we can thus traverse the network to get information as we need it. The declarative memory structure is vast, but only a few chunks are active at any one time. This reflects the distinction between conscious awareness and memory. When we need to remember something, we hop through the network. For practice memories, this is relatively easy, as most related ideas will at most be a step or two away. For new ideas, this is much harder since they're less well integrated into our other knowledge and require more effortful search processes. How do nodes get activated? Well, there's three sources. First, you perceive things from the outside world, and that automatically activates nodes in memory. So maybe you see a dog and some dog-related nodes just get activated automatically. Second, you can rehearse things internally to maintain that memory. So if someone told you their phone number and you were waiting to write it down, you might repeat it to yourself mentally to refresh the auditory experience that's no longer present. 
Finally, nodes can activate connected nodes. And this is what happens when one thought leads to another. Now, the exact details of this spreading activation mechanism is not entirely clear in ACTAR, but Anderson assumes that which chunks tend to be active is related to their likely usefulness in the situation. In short, he basically assumes that what we think of next is probably going to be the thing that's relevant for solving our problem. The declarative system, with its vast hidden network of long-term memory and briefly activated nodes corresponding to our conscious awareness, is impressive. In order to solve problems, we use this system to make decisions about what to do next. But, according to Actar, it's also inert. Something else must transform it to create an action. And that's where the procedural system comes in. The procedural system. The basic unit of the procedural system is the production. This is an if-then pattern. So to illustrate a production that you might use in solving an algebra problem might be something like, if my goal is to solve for x, and I have an equation in the format ax equals b, then I rewrite the equation as x equals b divided by a. Think of a production like the atomic thinking step involved in solving a problem. Whenever you need to take an action or make a decision, ACT-R models this as a production activating. Unlike the sprawling interlinked declarative memory, each one acts as an isolated unit that is learned and strengthened independently. Solving complex problems involves more productions than simple puzzles, but the basic ingredients are assumed to be the same. For each active representation in declarative memory, many different productions compete to find the best match for the current situation. When a production matches an active representation in declarative memory, and the expected value from executing this production exceeds the expected cost either of taking a different action or of waiting, it triggers. The action is taken, the state of the world or your internal mental state changes and the process repeats itself. If you repeat a sequence of actions many times, this sequence can be consolidated into a single production. So instead of having to go through multiple steps, you just do it in one go. Thus only one production has to be activated to execute the entire series. Now, while this is faster, it's also less flexible. So with time, this can result in skills that are less transferable to new situations, as you've automated specific solutions for specific problems rather than implemented a general procedure from scratch each time. How ACT-R claims you solve problems. So let's summarize the overall process of reasoning that ACT-R presents. One you form a declarative representation of the problem. This representation combines your current sensory experience with long-term memory and short-term rehearsal buffers. Two, productions compete with each other in parallel based on this current representation. Which one actually wins and decides which action you take depends on how well it matches with active chunks in declarative memory and the benefit that you expect will result from taking that action. Third, as each production is executed, it changes your present state. You either take action in the outside world, which will change your declarative representation via sensory channels, or the production directly changes your internal state, say by making a sub-goal, which changes what you focus on. Finally, the process repeats itself until the problem is solved. How do we acquire skills? In the ACTAR theory, learning skills is thought to be a process of acquiring and strengthening productions. 
Initially, productions are learned via analogy. We search our long-term declarative memories for a similar problem, then we try to match this to our current representation of the problem, and when we match, we create a production. ACTAR argues that we don't learn by explicit instruction, only by example. So when we appear to learn via instruction, we first generate an example based on the instruction, and then use this example to create a new production. Once created, productions are strengthened through use. Every time a production is used to solve a problem, it becomes more likely to be chosen again in similar circumstances. The strengthening process is incredibly slow, and this is why it can take so much practice to be good at complicated skills. Getting all of the productions to fire fluently requires enormous repetition and fine-tuning. According to Akhtar, the only thing that matters for solving a problem is reaching the solution, not how you got there. Mistakes in the process waste time and do not contribute to learning. Thus, Anderson advocates for intelligent tutors who can immediately correct mistakes in the process of solving a problem. Transfer of learning. Akhtar makes robust predictions about learning and transfer that are supported by quite a bit of data. A key prediction is that the amount of transfer that we predict between two different skills will depend on the number of productions that they share in common. Well, how well does it do? Well, uh, in the original article, I reproduced a graph from Anderson's Rules of the Mind. The prediction was that transfer should be linear in the number of productions. So the more productions, the more transfer, and that relationship should be a straight line. And if you look at the original graph, that's exactly what we see. To my mind, this is some of the best evidence that ACT-R, or something like it, accounts for the transfer of cognitive skills. However, transfer is somewhat better than ACT-R predicts. The fit is linear, but it starts around 26%. If skills truly had no shared productions, the theory suggests the fit should start at 0%. Anderson argues that this is probably because their model of skills omitted some productions. For instance, there may be some productions involved in using the computer, just the transfer between every task that uses the same system. I think this is fairly likely given the fact that all of these ACTAR experiments are done using a computer interface so that it can compare what the students do with what the model predicts. Now what about more complicated skills? ACTAR argues that more abstract, higher level skills should transfer better between situations because the underlying productions are preserved. So the skill of designing an algorithm should transfer between different programming languages because the algorithm is the same in each case, even if the skill of writing the syntax to code the algorithm won't. What about knowledge and understanding? Well, ACTAR has less to say here. The types of puzzles used to test ACTAR theory tend to not require a lot of background knowledge. Since the declarative part of learning is relatively quick in the demonstrations that have been studied, it doesn't dominate the transfer situation. For knowledge-rich domains like law or medicine, there may be different patterns of transfer as properly activating the declarative memory system becomes the most time-consuming part of acquiring a skill. Over a century ago, Edward Thorndike proposed that the only transfer we could expect between skills was due to them containing identical elements. ACT-R is essentially a revised version of this theory, arguing that the elements Thorndike sought are productions. Implications of ACT-R Nearly a year ago, I started digging into the research on transfer. It turned out to be a much deeper and more interesting question than I had initially realized. 
Understanding what knowledge transfers depends critically on the answer to the question, what is actually learned through experience? Act R makes a bold claim regarding this central question. The basic units of skill are productions. Practice generates new productions and strengthens old ones. Skills transfer to the degree to which these productions overlap. There are a few general implications we can tease out. First, most skills will be highly specific. Chess strategy doesn't transfer to business strategy because they have almost no productions in common. A microscopic analysis of any two skills should, in principle, tell us how much transfer is possible. Two, transfer should look smaller on tests of problem solving than on tests of future learning. To solve a problem, you need to have all of the productions. Possessing half of the productions doesn't help because you're missing steps that you need to move forward. However, having half of the productions will make learning twice as fast because you don't have as many new ones to acquire. School frequently fails to teach all of the skills needed for real-world performance. Now, this can be embarrassing when you measure people's proficiency on problems, but the results needn't be too gloomy. With further training, those people would likely quickly learn skills that use the same components. Three, practice makes perfect, but many types of practice can be wasteful. Anderson favors intelligent tutoring systems that immediately correct students when they make a mistake. Whether computers are up for this task is an open question, but human tutors are one of the most effective instructional interventions known. Four, complicated skills have simple learning mechanisms. Now, although the description of a production system may sound complicated, it's dead simple compared to the diversity of skills that we regularly perform. Positing simple mechanisms suggests that even the most complex performances can, in theory, be broken down into learnable parts. The only difficulty is investing all the time needed to learn them. In the next episode, I will examine Walter Kinch's construction integration model. Whereas Act R defined problem solving as its central example, construction integration delves into the process we use for comprehending text as its central paradigm. Both models have considerable overlap, which is reassuring in light of the volume of psychological data. Still, they have some interesting contrasts as well. Thanks for listening to this episode. More episodes like this can be found by searching for Scott Young Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and on most other podcasting apps available on your smartphone. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider rating my show as it helps other people find out about it. More of my work can be found on my website at scotthyoung.com.